This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Well, hello there, it's Jeremy Myers, and you're listening to the One Verse Podcast. Hey, we're not looking at a particular text of scripture today. Instead, I have a special guest on with me today. It's going to be Lucas Kitchen. He's an Amazon best-selling author. He is an author of over 20 books, and he's also a filmmaker, a pastor, an international speaker, and can be heard daily on the syndicated radio show Grace in Focus. I'm pretty excited to have him on the show. Hopefully soon we will be get, getting back to some of my studies on the Gospel Dictionary. I believe the next word we're looking at is the word uh, fruit, and whether or not you need fruit in your life to prove that you are a Christian. So we'll be getting back to that soon. But today I'm super excited to have Lucas Kitchen on the show to talk about his newest book, Naked Grace. So I'm not going to waste any more time on uh, introducing him. I'm going to let him do that himself. So Lucas, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I sort of gave a little bit of an introduction to the audience about yourself, but why don't you tell us a little bit more? Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to. So I didn't hear the intro. It sounded like the audio was sort of cutting out on my end. So I don't know what you said. So you could have <laughs> you could have called me a poached egg for all I know. But I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I grew up in East Texas, and I grew up in a very churched home. I guess you could say my dad was an elder, and we had many conversations about the Bible. And as I came up through um, high school and college, my college years. I got involved in ministry, you know, and did a lot of um, various kinds of ministry, did music, uh, uh, teaching and speaking, and um, and even later on began to write. And through all that time, uh, which is sort of the, the subject of this book, through that, through those years, I, I was secretly very confused about a lot of things. It felt like I felt like a lot of people had various phrases that they would use to talk about faith and to talk about the Bible. And they seemed contradictory quite often. And I, it seemed like nobody ever told me that people who teach can sometimes be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've, I've fought hard to try to harmonize all of these phrases that I heard people throwing out there. And it was difficult. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, uh, salvation is free, but it will cost you everything. Mm. You know, How often have we heard of, that? Uh, yeah, is, is that one that is familiar to you? Did, oh, yeah. No, I, I think everybody's heard that from time to time. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. And so you, you can kind of imagine what that does for a young person trying to make sense of, uh, you know, just all of this. And so so that's ultimately where this book uh, that we're talking about today came from, was just that that layer of confusion that sat on me. Um, and, you know, being in ministry, as you probably can understand, uh, you kind of have to hide that. You kind of got to stow it away somewhere. And um, that's painful and it is difficult. And so I, I sort of wrestled with that for a number of years. And that's where this book came from. So that's kind of the background. Yeah, no, I was a little surprised because having read some of your other books, Salvation and Discipleship, your one on eternal rewards and the other one on eternal life, um, I was expecting this to be more of a typical sort of theology book, you know, uh, based on principles and ideas, but it wasn't. Uh, it's it's more of a story, isn't it? 
Yeah, you know, it, it's a, I almost would call it a departure, but it's only a departure for me in the last few years. So my first writing projects were actually, uh, I did a few books uh, in the sci-fi and fantasy genre. Um, at the time, I had sort of pulled out a ministry and wasn't doing ministry anymore and was doing video work, you know, and so I, I, I sort of I didn't have kids yet, so I had lots of time on my hands. So I spent a few years just kind of honing the craft of writing. Um, on my Saturday mornings, I would write. You know, I, I did some some sort of space opera type stuff, and um, and so then when I got back into ministry a number of years later, um, I used that skill, but I used it in a very theological kind of. Uh, I wouldn't call it academic theological. I mean, I, I think it's sort of everything I've done is sort of low hanging fruit, but. Um, but it was it was pretty theologically focused, trying to kind of sort out some things that I had I had learned. And so this is different. This book is it's basically a collection of stories that are all knitted together from my life. Uh, some very vulnerable, some a little bit bizarre. Uh, but um, but you know how that goes. It's just that's my story. <laughs> and uh, you know, and so it's uh, it's kind of like you said. A lot of um, our readers have uh, sort of been surprised by it. Uh, it's a little different than what we've done so far. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. And part of that, I believe, is because it it um, resonated a lot with my own story or it resembled a lot. It was, there's so many is stories. That right? Yeah. And I, I think that's not just true of me. I think that anybody who has questions about salvation and discipleship and grace and eternal life and the gospel in general, I think if you've been a Christian for any length of time and sat in pews and churches and listened to some confusing messages come from the pulpits, uh, and you've had some of these questions, I think that every single person uh, who's had that sort of experience uh, will find various stories and accounts in your book that are strikingly similar to their own. Uh, yeah. And that's what I found as I was reading through it. There's just, oh, yeah, that happened to me. Oh, yeah, I had that question. Oh, yeah, oh, I wow. had a similar yeah. story, a similar event, a similar experience. And that's what I think is one of the powerful thing of stories like this, is people can realize they're not alone, that their questions are not, uh, they're not the only one asking these questions. And in fact, these questions are not taboo. And better yet, there are answers to these questions. So yes, uh, yeah. it's it's great yeah. to find someone like yourself who's willing to write about them and put some of these crazy, bizarre stories out there because it helps people uh, along the road, along the journey who have similar sorts of questions. Is that sort of yeah. the feedback you've been getting about the book so far? Yes, yes. We, we've, you know, it's been kind of, it was sort of a little bit nerve wracking releasing this one just because it's so different from what we've done. And um, our, you know, my ministry board, you know, we had a number of talks about it just to try to, um, th there's some things in the book. If, if, if your listeners, uh, if you listeners read um, the book, then you'll, uh, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. There's a few things that, um, could potentially hurt my reputation. That was what <laughs> my ministry board was saying is, you know, what, you know, if they, if they find out that you did these things and, and all of them were things that I did because I was thinking maybe God was, was drawing me in this direction, you know, um, you know, to do these certain things, to go deeper, to try harder, to pray more naked or whatever it is. <laughs> and so, um, so, you know, my approach though has been, I will be a buffoon if it helps other people mm. come out of the place that I was because, you know, I, it's in the book, but I remember a, 
a Monday morning sitting in my office at a church job that I had, literally asking myself, what is my role in my salvation? Basically saying, you know, what is it that I've done that that saved me? I mean, I was confused about it. And there I was, a paid worker in a church, you Mm -hmm. know, so um, it just, uh, it just was pretty excruciating in those years to pretend as if I had all the answers when I knew deep down, um, if somebody cornered me and really asked the kind of questions that we're talking about it, I, I just didn't have a clear answer. You know, I would, I would talk in circles and, um, it really sad. So I, I feel like I see that a lot in churches and I, I see the the damage that that causes, uh, pretty often, so and it's interesting. You said that your your background's a, a little bit similar. Did you? Uh, I, I'm sure your listeners know, but just so that I have some reference, did you grow up in church? What was what was your background there? Yeah, I grew up in a pastor's family as a pastor's kid, and uh, okay. attended a, a Christian school K through twelve, and then actually, you know what? Uh, I, I went to Laterno University as well, just like you did. Uh, oh, initially, wow. yeah. Although I only <laughs> I I started off in uh, mechanical engineering there. Uh, but I only I only made it through one semester. So okay. uh, before uh, coming back to Montana, I missed Montana. To, and plus, I had a girlfriend back here at the time. Uh, okay. So Montana and my girlfriend ended up drawing me back to Montana, where I went to Montana State University. Um, okay. Uh, before heading off to Moody Bible Institute and a whole whole story in there. But but yeah, yeah. very similar. I grew up in the church and a Christian background, you know, Christian family, all of that. And a lot of the yeah. similar questions, especially in my early years as a pastor, just like you had. So, yeah, uh, lots of similarities there. Um, yeah. What years were you at Laterno? I'll make this short, but I just just to, so I know oh. what, when were you at Laterno? Oh yeah, uh, let's see that that one semester would have been the fall semester of nineteen ninety four. Okay, great. Okay, so I was just a little bit after you. Okay, yeah. well, how cool? Yeah, that's yeah. really neat. <laughs> so anyway, good good area though. I mean, it's my first introduction to Texas. I ended up back in Texas at Dallas Theological Seminary. So yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, all right, so let, let's just talk a little bit about your story. Some of the stories in this book that really stood out to me. Uh, the first one really was sort of when you first started uh, questioning uh, things of eternal, you know, matters. Uh, it was with your cat. I don't know, you know, life and death issues. <laughs> and, and I think a lot of us have these sorts of memories as well, growing up or at some stage, maybe it was a grandparent or something. But what happened with you and how did you start first asking these questions about eternal issues? Yeah, there's a few a few memories that sort of swirl around in my mind kind of together. And the one that you're referencing is the day that my cat died. And um, it sounds so trivial, but we were a cat family. You know, I mean, there's dog families and there's probably other kinds of pet families, but we were a cat family. And so this was this was really jarring. You know, it was just such a such a shift. I was probably. I don't know, maybe eight or 10 kind of in that range. And it, it really forced me to start thinking about death, you know, like, like I'm going to be put in the ground or, you know, maybe cremated or something someday. What does that mean? You know, what does that mean for me? And, and I had already sort of nominally accepted the message of eternal life that Jesus gives. Uh, but I not really thought through the consequences, you know, um, and why it was so important that I believe that message. Uh, so that was a, a, a really, you know, interesting moment. And there was sort of a mix up on that day, which I, I talk about in the book that my, you know, I, I sort of caught my dad digging the hole for our cat, our dead 
cat carcass in the backyard. <laughs> uh, and I mistakenly thought our neighbor had died. She was a she was an older lady. She was a smoker. And I thought dad was preparing to bury our neighbor in our yard where we played. And so that tells you kind of my age and my yeah. mentality. And so it, it was not, you know, so there's other kinds of questions in this book that I had to answer other than just, you know, theological questions uh, like, Dad, why would you bury the, uh, you know, Miss McCullough in the yard? But um, he set me straight on that one. But, you know, just the just the experience was quite a uh, quite a jarring one. Mm-hmm. So then you go on in the book to sort of talk about how you had trouble finding answers to some of these questions you were starting to have. And then even in your in your teenage years, which I thought this was pretty fascinating, in your teenage years, you started a Bible study. What was it, like in your garage or something, in your house? Yeah, so yeah, my brothers and I um, kind of had stolen away our, the garage space from my parents to use as a, a music studio. And so, you know... One of the things I did was just invited friends over to start a Bible study. I thought there'd be three or four kids there, and it it wound up being kind of a you know a Thursday night thing, and it, it it got well attended. And so, but there I was, not knowing how to talk about salvation. So we talked about all kinds of things, all you know, <laughs> all probably not that important compared to how does one get saved? And these kids were from all kinds of different backgrounds, you know. Mm. So, um. You know, yet again, a, a real fail on my part, but really it was just because of that confusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty exciting, though. I mean, you're basically planning a church in your teenage years as a high school student, and kids are com- coming and asking questions, and you're leading Bible studies. And um, But, you know, you, like you said, you didn't have all the uh, answers to some of the questions you yourself were asking, and so you just uh, d- did your best to avoid them. And I, I sometimes feel like that does happen... Um, in, in church settings, too. I remember specifically, just to, to tell one of my own stories, it's really similar. I went with—this was right after I graduated high school. I went with a group of friends on a road trip down the California coast, and one night we were uh, sitting around one of those barrel fires on the beach down on yeah. uh, on, on the coast of California, and some guy randomly comes up. I've never—you know, you hear this happening, but it literally happened to me. G- guy randomly walks up to us. Uh, and we're like, hey, how you doing? You want to join us around the fire? Sure. I just have one question. Can anyone tell me how to go to heaven? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know if we hadn't been talking about scripture or theology or anything. And he just randomly wow. walks up and asks that question. And here I was, a pastor's kid, K through 12, um, and you know, reading the Bible. I'd done a wanna, the whole thing. Uh, and we all just sort of stared at each other and hemmed and hawed. And right there I realized, wow. I know nothing about the most important questions, mm. at least the questions some people are even asking. This random stranger walks up, yeah. and uh, you know that's one of the things that sort of led me, started me to try to find answers to these questions. But yeah, uh, what yeah. would your answer have been in those years? What what would you have said to that guy? I mean, do you remember it all? Oh yeah, I, I, we we said something along the lines of. Uh, well, you have to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and turn from your sins and give your heart to Jesus. And uh, we probably even, if I remember correctly, one of us led him in the sinner's prayer or something like that. You know, sort of the standard Christian answer. Yeah, sure. Uh, something sure. along those lines is what I would have said. Uh, I have some other similar stories. I was in tennis in high school, and I once, quote-unquote, evangelized a guy by— he, 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 he completely destroyed me on the tennis court— and so I had carried some tracks around in my uh, my tennis case, um, my tennis racket case, 
And so I was fuming mad. So I pulled out a, I pulled, I pulled out a gospel track and I walked up to me. And you're supposed to shake your hand, sign a good sportsmanship, even when you lose on the tennis court, as, yeah. as in all sports. So I walked up to him and I didn't shake his hand. Instead, I put <laughs> I put the gospel track in his hand and I said, read this or you're going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, that's, that's, was, was my, anyway. Um, but, but these, these are the, you know, the sorts of things that happen when, when you don't really know what the gospel is or even how to answer yeah. these questions. You know, you're supposed to say something, but you're afraid yeah. of saying the wrong thing. Um, and, and so sometimes what comes out is, is just wrong or gibberish or you're confused to so the other person's confused. So, um, but you did pretty good, I think. It sounds like, uh, you know, covering a lot of some of the basic issues in that Bible study. That's really impressive there in your teenage years. So um, as an interim pastor, you already sort of mentioned that, um, but I was really fascinated. And this is really sort of a Southern sort of thing. We don't do, well, some churches up here do these altar calls uh, up, up here yeah. in the North, but it's really, when I was in Texas down there, I noticed it was a lot more common down there, these altar calls, and especially with some um, certain denominations. But tell us a bit about that, when you were this interim pastor and sort of the expectations that were put on you for these altar calls and just how you handled that whole situation. Yeah, so um, interesting thing, I, I found an old recording of a sermon that confirms what I'm about to explain. I, I heard myself actually doing it. I, I had it in my memory, but I, I, I found evidence the other day. A friend sent me <laughs> this old recording from probably when we were in our mid twenties. And so here's, here's how I would basically handle the altar call. Maybe I should define it first for your listeners that don't know. An altar call generally is when a pastor or probably as often a, you know, a, a speaker from out of town doing a revival type, you know, a, a event, uh, invites people who want to make some sort of decision for Christ to, to walk down the aisle, come down, maybe they, bow at the altar or they pray or they sign a card, something like that. But but it, it's an attempt to try to add some type of physical action to, um, you know, what we might call a mental change or a faith change. And so, like you said, in the South, it is a strong tradition. And many, uh, many denominations um, expect it, you know, at the end of a service or at the end of, a, you know, a, a talk. And so I came from a, a Bible church and we didn't really do that. Um, I didn't know exactly why, but we just, we just didn't do it. I, I wasn't used to it. And in my search to find it in the Bible, there really wasn't much evidence that there was ever an altar call in the Bible, hmm. so to speak. I mean, there's, there's similar types of things, but but nothing that says to do that. So when I would get asked to speak somewhere, what I would often do is I would um, I would sort of stroke the ego of the the you know minister who was there, uh, you know the vocational minister, and I would say, well, you know, you know your congregation better than I do. <laughs> so when we get to the end, I'll just turn it over to you, and if you want to do an altar call or you know, whatever, then you can do that. And so it's my way of sort of avoiding having to do an invitational or an altar call at the end when ultimately what I was doing was I was avoiding it because I wasn't sure I wasn't comfortable with a lot of the things I, I had heard. I could repeat them. I mean, it wasn't hard to memorize the 
the phrases that were used, but I was never really comfortable using those types of phrases that I heard in those altar calls. And so I would just hand it off, kind of pass the baton and let somebody else, you know, fumble and him haw around and, you know, do whatever it is they wanted to do. Mm. And so, um, if I were more brave and less of a coward, I probably would have told them that, you know, I don't believe in this practice. I think it's maybe a little bit, um, you know, overblown and maybe we shouldn't do it. But that was not the type of personality I was. <laughs> I was just like, you know, pretend like I'm okay with it. You know, as long as you give me the microphone, I'll I'll do what I'm supposed to and then step off stage. So did you grow up in a tradition that had altar calls or was that kind of a was that kind of a foreign thing to you when you came down south? It would happen really rarely okay. in the church I was at. Usually during like you said, a special speaker would come in. Uh, I don't remember normally the pastor, the senior pastor, giving an altar call. My dad was a pastor also, and he was the associate pastor, so uh, okay. he only preached a couple times a year, and um, I don't remember him giving an altar call either. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it was more of a thing when I came down south and started seeing it everywhere. And then like you, you know, getting into, uh, invited to come speak at churches and things, and sometimes it was an exp- expectation they yeah. wouldn't even ask, are you going to? All right, so at the end of the service, when you do an altar call, that's yeah, sort of exactly. how it was. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so anyway, I sort of tried to handle, I'll be honest, the same way you did. Uh, and, and that's just sort of how it went. But uh, in your in your book, you finally did give an altar call. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you talk about that, uh, what, on page 149? I don't know if you have the book, but what was the result of that? How did you handle that? Well, what happened? Yeah, it was a, it was a really strange... Uh, occurrence, kind of how it happened. I got forced into it in a in a sense, but not by the administration of the church or by the staff. There was a kid that actually. So I was I was um, interim youth pastor at a church in the town where I grew up at the time, and there was a kid that had started to come, and he was he was this very formidable kind of personality. He was big for his age. He he was bigger than me by far, you know, very tall, very, you know, very much a leader, but he had come from a pretty rough background, you know, so he said exactly what he thought is just kind of the way um, that he operated. And so at the end of a service, one uh, probably Wednesday night, I think it was a Wednesday, he actually stood up when I was done. I think I, I think I was about to pray and he sensed that we were drawn to a close. He stood up and said, um, I'm, I'm looking for the quote here. Uh, let me see if I can find it. He he basically cornered me and said, I, you know, I want to know what, um, you know, what we have to do to get saved. And it was sort of like nobody's leaving until we <laughs> do whatever it is that we got to we got to do. And so I just was kind of put on the spot. And it was, you know, I, I had that feeling of like, oh, I shouldn't do this, but I don't know what else to do. I mean, I I didn't I didn't know at the time. Um, what else I just, you know, it's just what I'd seen. So I had everybody close their eyes, bow their heads, and I walked them through basically a public version of the sinner's prayer. And the outcome was that, uh, it was 12 people, including him, 12 people, um, you know, at the end in the South, the way that the altar call happens is usually they'll do sort of this this prayer of some kind, and then they'll have people clo- with their eyes closed raise their hand, 
And if you raise your hand, then they'll do a, a next step, which is, okay, anybody that raised your hand, come on down front and we'll pray with you and we'll, you know, I don't know, make it official. So I did, I went through all that and there was, there was 12 of them, which was, you know, maybe half the group. I don't know. It was, it was not a huge group. And, um, but ultimately I felt like I'd done them a disservice because I'd given them kind of this experience where they, they felt like they had done something important. Uh, but ultimately basically all of them disappeared from the ministry. All of them sort of fizzled out. You know, there was no real discipleship, Mm. at least that I could tell that followed that. And at the time I didn't understand the distinction between that moment of salvation and the lifestyle of discipleship. So, so I equated it with this, this concept that we sometimes hear that if there's, uh, if there's no fruit, there's no root, you know, that, that if they, if they don't continue, if they don't persevere, then they must never have been saved. And so that, that just really bothered me. It bothered me that, you know, I felt like I'd manipulated them into this experience. But then on the other hand, it bothered me that it apparently didn't work because they didn't mm-hmm. stick with it or, you know, whatever it was. And so it was ultimately a bitter, you know, a, a bitter experience. And then then simultaneously, the rest of the church hears about it and they're celebrating it. And I have this brooding feeling about it. Like, why are you guys celebrating? Are are we sure that we did something good here? I mean, I I feel like I manipulated them into, you know, just sort of agreeing and closing their eyes and praying and raising their hands and um, such an awkward situation for me that um, to this day, I still feel kind of guilty about that. You know, mm-hmm. just it was born out of confusion, but I still feel I feel guilty about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you even mentioned there that you sort of manipulated them. You told them, uh, what, what do you say here? Something about a um, the most emotionally manip- manipulative story. And, and that's sort of how sometimes these altar calls are preceded. Uh, yeah. Some some sort of emotional manipulative story or illustration or even uh, music sometimes that encourages a certain response. In fact, I just remembered I was at a summer camp one year, and we had I was the director of the camp, but we had brought in this speaker. By the way, you got about fifty percent response. He got one hundred percent response, and I'll tell you how. <laughs> mm, wow! Uh, he put two barrels up there in front of the uh, in front of the audience. This is a teenage camp, uh, high school camp. And uh, in one he light he lit a fire, and in the other one mm-hmm. he put he put uh, feather pillows and and uh, white fe- feather comforters, and basically said one is heaven, one is hell. Everybody write <laughs> your name on a list, and we're gonna have everybody on a piece of paper. Everybody walk forward, and as you pass through these two barrels, drop your name into the place you want to go. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, one hundred percent of the students yeah. dro- you know drop their name into the the feather pillow Whoa. barrel instead of the fire burning barrel. And so he was able to report 100% uh, results, uh, you know, oh my goodness. 100%, 100% response for his altar <laughs> call at, at Bible camp that week. So, uh, but you know, that's, that's what it is. It's manipulation a lot of times. Yeah. And the message yeah. is often, like you say, so unclear. And then the worst part about it is these kids, they go home, there's very little discipleship, if any, they sort of fizzle out. And then uh, pastors and church leaders and ministry leaders who... Um, know that there's something more, they sort of have the same feeling that you did, like, uh, okay, but what just happened there? Is this really something we're supposed to be repeating every couple months, every summer? Um, How how come there's no change in their life? And a lot of it comes from 
um, some of what you described there is that difference between the initial believing in Jesus for eternal life and then that ongoing lifestyle of discipleship that is so important um, Absolutely. for the Christian yeah. life. So um, just talk about how you finally began to find some of these answers then uh, to, to some of these questions. You know, you have yeah, these sure. questions, lots of people have these questions, but where, what, what happened, or just, just explain that process. Yeah. Well, so what I noticed kind of in, in those years was that there was a there was a broken cycle, like we've been talking about. It's a cycle that was it kept happening. And how most churches seem to most people who worked at churches seem to try to to fix the cycle was what I would call like a version of emotionalism. Like if they could drum up more emotion, maybe the cycle would would stop repeating itself and they would finally be a committed disciple or whatever. Mm. And so it just, it bothered me so much for such a long time that I felt myself beginning to pull away, uh, pull, you know, pull out. I even, you know, ultimately I, I went to seminary and just kind of was asking the same questions and, and just wasn't finding the answer. And so basically I, I started to pull back. I, um, started to remove myself from kind of the ministry world, remove myself from the the speaking world, um, you know, and, and just all of that. And ultimately it was, um, uh, you know, the answer came because I married up. I, I met a girl who grew up in a church that was very focused on presenting a clear gospel message, uh, faith alone. Uh, and, and their focus was, um, was primarily the gospel of John, uh, in terms of where do we find the message of how someone, you know, gains eternal life. Mm. And so it was not immediate, but I began to listen to that. There was this great moment. I mean, it's one of the great moments of my life where, uh, we were talking on the phone. My, she was my fiance. Uh, she may have just been my girlfriend at the time. Yeah. I think she was just my girlfriend. Cause she was trying to figure out you know, could we, could this relationship work? Cause she wanted to know where I was theologically. And, um, she, she asked me this question that I didn't think much of. Um, it was something to the effect of, um, how do you present the gospel? You know? Mm-hmm. And so I talked a long time after she said that, I, I think I started in Genesis, you know, <laughs> and just kind of went through the law and the, the prophets and, you know, whatever. I, I was just trying to, obfuscate, you know, mm. I was trying to kind of make it seem like I knew a bunch, but hide the fact that I wasn't really sure how to answer. So I, at the, at the end of, of talking for a long time about how I present the gospel, she finally just said this really simple phrase. She said, well, I just think it's, it's more simple than that. I think it's, you know, I think you're, you're confused that, uh, or I, I th- there is a difference between a believer and a follower. That was her, her operative line. Mm. And there I was, you know, after years of Bible college, you know, even been in seminary, been in ministry, and nobody had ever articulated that. There, there had been some that kind of alluded to it, but nobody had ever made that clear to me that, that you know, one is not indelibly tied to the other. You know, usually the way that people presented it is that, yeah, salvation might be different than discipleship, but if you're not a disciple, you were never saved, mm-hmm. you know. So she drew this really clear line between them. And I was just, I was just stunned. I had never heard that, but it made some sense. 
But it, it, it took me quite a while of, of thinking about it. And ultimately, I was at a Bible conference with some, some uh, Bible teachers who went to the same seminary you did, uh, DTS, um, who finally helped me to see, you know, the difference. Um, and it wasn't, and the thing was, it wasn't, it wasn't because I, I, I wasn't listening to what Bible teachers had been saying, it was that I'd listened to too many. I'd listened to too many different contradicting messages and tried to harmonize them. And so, you know, went to this Bible conference with her and it was, uh, it was just a life-changing experience because they just drew this really clear line between believing in Jesus for eternal life and basically everything that comes after, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, presumably what, what ought to come after and sometimes what doesn't come after. Um, so it was just a, it was a real, a real turning point for me. Um, and it was emotional and, you know, for years I'd been trying to drum up emotion uh, to no avail. And here I was finally kind of finding clarity in what I, I believe Jesus was actually saying about salvation. And it did evoke emotion. Um, and that was, that was probably the most amazing thing to me is that, you know, it just, it really turned me inside out and, uh, and allowed me to begin to be excited about that. Like the guy on the beach that you talked about, if somebody came up to me now, I would be excited to talk to them about it. Whereas before I would have been pretty afraid, uh, just because I, I didn't know how to respond to that. Um, so, so yeah, anyway, I think that's, that's kind of the, the gist of it. It yeah. was, um, what was the was Bible just, conference? It was a, wasn't it a GES conference? It was, yeah. yeah Grace it, Evangelical Society. And I think you share yeah. a little bit about that in the book, right? Especially you I asked do, a yeah. question, I think it was to Bob Wilkin, wasn't it? And Yes. And he just gave this straight up clear answer the way he often does. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember what the question was. I don't know if you do, but... Well, so yeah. So at the time, he had been talking about what it means to love Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I had always associated loving Jesus with being saved. Like you either love Jesus or you don't. If you love him, you're saved. If you don't love him, because that's what speakers and teachers and, you know, it's what people had said. So he made this really, and it was so airtight. It was like this, this airtight argument that Jesus specifically says to love him is to do his commandments. And then, you know, Paul specifically says that we are not saved by doing commandments, you know? And so therefore loving Jesus must be something different than the requirement for salvation. Uh, you know, and so it's just, it was just a very logical approach. And so my question to him was, could you be saved? But, or I think I said it this way, could you have eternal life, but not love Jesus? And Bob Wilkin just said, yeah, of course. You know, and then he gave, you know, biblical background for that. And, um, and if you say that to people in normal denominations, <laughs> it it really ruffles some feathers. Oh, I mean, that's yeah. a that is a mind blowing thing to say, and people will largely disagree with you. But but when you see it from that perspective, that the relationship, you know, that the the growing intimacy, sort of fellowship relationship that we have with Christ. It is not fully developed the you know the first moment we believe, mm-hmm. and so it makes sense that that's something that must grow. It's something that takes work, um, you know. So so here's the concept basically, because I've said a lot, but here's here's the bottom line. What I came to understand is that salvation really is free apart from works. That it's based on what we believe, 
that, you know, that when we believe in Christ, it is given to us without, you know, without strings attached. And then after that point, the hope and the expectation is that a person go on and live a life of discipleship. The sticky part is uh, usually what happens when they don't, you know, what happens when somebody, um, you know, does not live in the way that they, they ought, uh, you know, and it's, it's kind of a question of how do we respond to that? And my, my answer now is still, um, they are saved if they've believed. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's just as simple as that. And the rest is, is in a sense between them and God. Um, so. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a great starting point for this whole conversation and answering all the questions too, because if you went to such a person and said, well, because you are not living the way, you know, a, uh, the Bible describes a disciple of Jesus to live, therefore your salvation when you believed in Jesus, you know, last year or 10 years ago or whatever wasn't true. Well, now all of a sudden, and so let's redo that. They're like, well, what am I supposed to redo? Uh, yeah, and now exactly. you've muddled the whole offer of eternal life that Jesus so clearly gives in the Gospel of John, which Paul writes about in Romans and Galatians and everywhere yeah. else. I mean, all of a sudden now, as soon as you've gone down that road, you've just introduced so much confusion into that person. Where is it so much easier and better and more logical and biblical, in my opinion, <laughs> uh, to, to tell, go up to such a person and say, look, you did believe in Jesus last year uh, or 10 years ago, and therefore you have eternal life. Good job. Yeah. Now, from yeah. that, let's go on from there. Don't you want more? Don't don't you want to experience more or investigate more or have a deeper relationship, fellowship with Jesus? Uh, you know, don't you want more? You can challenge them and encourage them from the basis, the fact that they do have eternal life. And, and it's just Absolutely. so much uh, more liberating and encouraging and uh, for them and for you. Um, it's much more simple, too. So Yeah. Yeah. And that, you know, I, I felt in a very practical way, that experience that you're talking about, that for years, it, there were certain sins in my life, which I talk about in the book. I don't know if they're inappropriate to talk about here, but, uh, you know, I think your audience probably can, can stomach it. I, I had a, a bit of a problem with pornography. And so, uh, before, you know, as all of this was happening, um, and so I had gotten to the point where, I was not really interested in working on that. I just, I just sort of put it in the the box of like, oh, I'll always be this way. Hopefully, it doesn't mean I'm not saved. But that's kind of what some people say about it. I don't know what to think about it. I just didn't want to work on it. I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to try. Um, it kind of stressed me out sometimes. But it just was, it was an issue. It wasn't until I kind of recaptured this clarity that eternal life is a free gift that we receive by faith apart from all of that and whether or not I overcome or, you know, at that time, I, it, whether or not I would overcome my pornography habit didn't have any bearing on whether or not I was going to be in heaven. It had bearing on my fellowship with the Lord. It had bearing on, you know, other things like eternal rewards. But, but ultimately it wasn't until I, I, I came to this understanding that I actually found the motivation to start fighting that battle, to start, you know, fighting off pornography and, um, and, you know, with my, ultimately with my wife's help, you know, I found the, the, um, you know, the, you know, the mechanisms I'll say to stop, uh, stop looking at pornography, but I, I wasn't even motivated to do that until I understood that salvation is free. And some people will say, well, how is that even connected? But, but it is, it is, it's exactly what you were just saying that before, you know, before I understood 
that my discipleship and my salvation were separate, it was always born out of guilt. Mm. You know, it, in any sort of try, attempt to overcome a sin was always a, a guilt motivation. Whereas now it's inspiration. It's, it's, um, it's excitement to think about how things could be so much better. And, and that might sound foreign to some of, you know, the listeners that are out there trying to sort this stuff out. But, um, but it's, it's, there's an excitement to it when we begin to understand that, yes, it really is a free gift. It's not a bait and switch. It's not a, a, you know, car salesman that's trying to, you know, trick us into, you know, a so-called free gift that, that we then have to work the rest of our lives for. Mm. Um, and so it changed, it just changed, it changed me. It changed, you know, so much about me when, uh, when this finally began to make sense. Yeah, and that's really what you talk about there in sort of the last chapter of your book, The Way We Change. You say, let me just read this quote, The gospel of grace often gets accused by naysayers of being a license to sin. In my experience, it was salvation apart from works, sometimes called free grace, that gave me the foundation I needed to begin to mount a serious fight against my sin. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah, exactly. Right, when we finally understand grace, really, in all its beauty and glory and and absolute freeness, (laughs) no strings attached, as you were saying, um, no fine print, no, you know, hidden details or anything. It's just God's grace towards us. When we finally come to understand that, that's when... Um, we are finally able to begin to defeat sin in our lives and gain victory over sin because we're now liberated from that guilt and that that condemnation that yeah. comes with other forms of of the gospel in a sense, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, yeah. It it strikes me that until we understand the freeness of grace, everything else is a law, hmm. you know. And and Paul talks about how. You know, being focused on the law basically results in death, you know, in in kind of this this dead living, so to speak. Um, and that's exactly what I had experienced, you know, was this focus on, well, I know what the rules are, and so I'm going to try to follow the rules. But I had no life, and there was no life behind that. Now, I mean, deep down, I had believed when I was a kid, you know, so there was eternal life in me, but it was co- sort of sort of layered with all of this confusion, which I would probably just call legalism. Um, and it had turned so many things into a law in my life. And it, it totally sucked the joy out of the Christian life. You know, it sucked the joy out of so much of what I had done. Um, and, you know, and so I was, man, I was so happy, just so happy to finally mm-hmm. make sense of it mm-hmm. um, and begin to move in the right direction. And it wasn't like, so some people tell their testimony where it's like, suddenly I was different. For me, suddenly I thought different. Yep. But mechanically, I had a lot of things I had to work on. You know, it was not immediate. I, I did not immediately overcome uh, you know, the, the sins that were part of my life. And I needed help, you know, and that was part of part of my problem was pride. You know, I needed to sort of overcome some of my pride so that I could then also work on these other sins. And, you know, I needed help in doing that. So. It wasn't immediate, but it was it was the beginning. You know, I feel like it was the beginning of a shift in my life. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's exactly the same thing that happened with me. Now, having said all of this, there is a great. This is the last question I have for you. This is a great. There is a great danger 
in someone who begins to see these truths and starts to teach and preach them, especially if they're in some sort of ministry position, right? You you talk in your yeah. story about, or you, you talk in your book, you tell a story about what happened to you at the See You at the Pole um, <laughs> yeah. event. Um, so maybe you can tell that, and then just maybe give a little bit of a warning to any pastors or ministry leaders out there. If you start to, what's what might happen to them if they start to see these truths from Scripture and start to teach and preach them in their church or ministry? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So my my experience was um, th- this was probably partially my eagerness, my over eagerness to preach something that I really maybe wasn't ready to preach, but. I talked a moment ago about that experience with the theologian who helped me see the difference between loving Jesus as a discipleship uh, action and believing in Jesus as a salvation action or, you know, a a salvation requirement. And it was not long after that that I had I had been asked to speak at a see you at the poll rally, which in the south. I don't know. Do you get do you guys have see you at the poll? Yes, we have those up are? here. Sure. Okay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's apparently nationwide. So we have these rallies and it was a youth event. And I just sort of waded into that discussion, sort of unprepared, but just was so excited to finally be clear on this. But I realized that um, in trying to explain it, there were sort of two problems. The first problem was I needed to think more about how to explain these things because it, it didn't occur to me at the time, but I was trying to untie century old knots, knots that maybe came from, you know, some of the great revival movements, you know, of the last few centuries. And so terminology that has been used to talk about salvation for over a hundred years, I'm probably not going to undo at a see you at the poll rally, you know? And so, (laughs) so I sort of waded in thinking that, you know, well, I'll just fix this right up and, you know, help everybody get clear. And so that was partially my you know, my naivete to think that 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 could happen so easily and so quickly. Um, but then the other the other thing to know is just that there are phrases that are so ingrained in in people's ministry and people's Christianity that if you touch them, uh, it's sort of like the Ark of the Covenant. You might get zapped, you know, sort of the opposite <laughs> of the Ark of the Covenant. It's like the the unholy, you know, Ark or something. But uh, but that's kind of what I realized is um, at that seat at the poll rally, I spoke about the difference between ultimately the difference between salvation and discipleship. And it made a number of people quite angry, um, even, you know, kind of mainline evangelicals that, you know, felt like we were kind of in the same camp. They, they just weren't ready for that. And, and, you know, um, I remember this moment where they had kind of a number of other ministers, cause at the see you at the poll rallies, uh, ministries from all over town will get together. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of a mixed bag of different theological ideas, which is not the time probably to go into this sort of a thing. But, <laughs> um, but I remember seeing, a a group of those ministers from other churches kind of circled up, kind of angry faced talking to the guy who had invited me to come speak. And so here, ultimately what happened was I, I stopped getting invited to come speak at places <laughs> after that. You know, I, I sort of, I, I think got branded as the unpredictable, uh, the guy that will say things that will make your pastor mad, you know? Um, but, but I mean, it wasn't mean hearted. It just was, I was I was suddenly saying things that they felt like w- was no longer orthodox, um, 
because that that salvation and discipleship are so mixed where where we are. I don't know if it is everywhere else, but oh, yeah. it's so mixed here. It's hard for people to let go of that. And so it was easier for them to let go of me. They were less attached to me than they were those ideas. And so, um, you know, so for a number of years, I stopped getting speaking mm-hmm. engagements. And I, I, I sort of track it back to that moment when I decided to start speaking about free grace, you yeah. know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you just imagine, I know this wasn't exactly the message you presented at Speak You at the Poll, but imagine if someone got invited to speak at a, a you know church where they were sort of confused, and someone got up there and said what Bob Wilkins said was, yeah, you can have eternal life, you can believe in Jesus or have eternal life and not love Jesus. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that person's never getting invited back uh, yeah. to, to speak at a, a typical church. And, yeah. you know, if you have time to explain it and the people are open to you know, having a discussion about this, then maybe there's time for that. So, but I've heard this and it's sort of, it didn't happen to me exactly the same way, but I've, I've heard it from pastors and elders and deacons and just uh, people who are in liter- ministry positions all over the world when they start to sort of try to unravel some of these knots, untie them as you were talking about in their ministry setting, in their church. Uh, very quickly, they find themselves sort of stuck on, you know, maybe cast out of the church sometimes, you know, quote yeah. unquote, ec- evangelically excommunicated in a sense, <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, or, or losing their job or who knows what it, it can happen. And so I don't know if you have any words of advice or wisdom for any pastors or ministry leaders who are listening to this. And uh, these are the sorts of things I talk about in my own podcast in a, in a different yeah. way. Uh, and so what would you tell them if they have been persuaded or convinced about these things through some of my own teaching or, uh, you know, in their own study, and they want to share some of these things, but they know it's going to ruffle some feathers? What, what would you say? Yeah, I, I think the the first thing is it's worth it. Um, yep. You know, you know, I think about what Jesus, kind of some of his parting words to his disciples, you know, now he was talking about people who would ultimately kill him, but he he said, you know, if they hate if they hated me, you know what to expect. Mm-hmm. You know, they're gonna they're gonna hate you too. Now, what comes as such a surprise is that we can be hated from within the church, yeah. um, and that's that's hard to accept. But um, I think the thing to remember is that that doesn't mean that we're dealing with unbelievers. It means we're dealing with confused people. I mean, people get. People get a little prickly when they get confused. Nobody likes being confused. And so if I begin to preach a free grace message to an audience that has heard something else all their life, I think it's good for me to know what to expect because that helps me to respond in a in a gentle and a kind way. You know, Um, if I respond with fire and brimstone, then that's I don't I don't think that helps anybody. I, I think. You know, I I love how, you know, when you read through the book of Acts, when Paul would get re- rejected, and usually it wasn't by people who were believers, it was usually, you know, from obstinate Jews or, you know, even, even Greeks, you know, uh, Gentiles. But when he would get rejected, he was eager to jump back in there. And, you know, I, I'm thinking of that moment in, uh, you know, in Acts where he's basically you know, they're trying to kill him and he's trying to go back into the arena to, to tell him more about Jesus, you know, and, um, there's, it's just, it's worth it. It's, you know, it was worth it to Paul. It was worth it to Jesus. I mean, all of the disciples ultimately gave their lives. And I, I, I doubt any of us are going to give our lives for this probably. Um, 
but even that ultimately would be worth it if we're sharing you know the truth and i am so utterly convinced that this is the truth that um it's it's so great to rest in this feeling of like i finally found something that would be worth dying for now don't take me wrong i don't want to die i'd like to keep living hmm. but um but I think that's kind of my advice is it's it's worth it. It also helps to find other people in uh, in the same mindset and to fellowship with them, you know, and so many people that are in this, you know, what we some of us will call free grace movement, but just, you know, faith alone movement. Um, it's easy to feel isolated. You know, it's easy to to feel like there's nobody else out there, but there are. Uh, but, you know. You might have to get on Skype or on your phone and, and fellowship from a distance and kind of recharge your batteries that way. Uh, but ultimately, I just I think it's it's worth it, you know, in the end. Yeah, for sure. Well, Lucas, thank you very much. And for anybody listening who is feeling a little isolated or just wants to learn more about some of these things, I highly recommend all of uh, Lucas's books on this topic. The most recent one we're talking about is Naked Grace. And I'm looking on Amazon right now. The Kindle edition is only 99 cents. Can't beat that. Cannot well, beat that. when it's free. Every once in a while, it's free, so you could watch for that, too. <laughs> okay, so so watch for that. Uh, but I also recommend his other books on the topic, Salvation and Discipleship, Eternal Rewards, and then one on Eternal Life. Um, are there others in the sort of the Free Grace series that you're writing or have written? So there's another book that is a really short book that I did called Thomas, Hero of the Faith. And uh, I... It's a it's an easy read, and it might be in there. You can find that on Amazon as well. Um, certainly working on some other books, working on a book called uh, Eternal Doubt, which kind of deals with some of the, the negative aspects that we see uh, when we follow this idea of uh, discipleship and salvation are the same thing. So, but that, that'll probably be a year before that's out. Okay. So, Fantastic. Um, so people want to sort of be notified when that book is out. Is there a way they can connect with you or sort of follow along and yeah. learn more about you? Yeah. Great way to do that is if you go to lucaskitchen.com, that is my Amazon author page and you can click the, the button that says follow. Uh, that's a pretty good way to do it. And you can just send me a message. I'll give you my email address if you'd like it. It's lucaskitch at gmail.com. I would love to hear from anybody that that wants to um, share some share some war stories. It'd be it'd be fun to to connect with uh, with anybody that wants to. So that'd be fantastic. So that's L U C A S K I T C H. Yes. At gmail.com. Gmail yep. Yeah. And I'm looking in the back of your book. It also says you have a couple of websites: simplybelief.com and lucasanswers.com. Yes, uh, it's kind of different um, different. Purposes for each of those those sites. Um, Simply Belief is where we put our te uh, some of our teaching videos that go along with our books. So if you were, for instance, if you got our book Eternal Life, in that book there will be QR codes that have teaching videos that go along with the chapters. Same with um, Eternal Rewards. So that's where we house those, and also uh, we have a lot of evangelistic uh, materials like kids tracks, children's books, stuff like that. Um, and so we have a lot of that on simplybelief.com, belief with an F, simplybelief.com. And then lucasanswers.com was originally called Questions from Atheists, and it was originally a 
basically an apologetics from a free grace perspective website. Um, it still is that, but it's kind of grown to just sort of when somebody has a question about the Bible, that's often where I'll answer it. Mm. So it's got a lot of interesting and kind of off the wall questions, but also just a lot of standard kind of discussions about, um, about the types of things we're talking about. Mm. Fantastic. So that's a lot of resources. If you're listening books and websites and even Lucas's very own personal email, that's fantastic for giving that out. Thank you so much, Lucas. I really appreciate it. Make sure that when that uh, eternal doubt book comes, comes out that you uh, get in contact with me, we'll have you back on. I would love it. Thank you so much, Jeremy. This has been great. Yes, likewise. Thank you, Lucas. All right.